0: This is React Podcast. I'm Chantastic. Today, we sit with Lara Schenk to discuss CSS algorithms and my favorite term of the year, turd-driven development. She's brilliant, obviously, and it's a real treat to chat with someone who shares my affinity for CSS and a stoic acceptance of how crappy our codebases are. But she offers hope to teams that prioritize the work of design engineering. Don't miss her talk, CSS Algorithms. I'll link it. It's hands down my favorite talk of 2019. Before we start, let me tell you about the folks helping us put on this show today, Linode and G2i. Deploy a server to the Linode cloud in minutes, offering cloud computing plans for every workload from simple web hosting to CPU intensive needs like video encoding and machine learning, Linode offers a balance of power and price for every customer. When you're in the business of delivering content to users, you know how important it is to have that content on a server as close to your user as possible. And Linode helps you do that. They just added two new data centers in Toronto and Mumbai. Combine that with native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, and the industry's fastest processors, they can help you serve your customers as fast as possible. Visit linode.com slash react and get a $20 credit. Uh, visiting that URL will automatically apply the promo code react2019. For me, the worst part of contracting by far was shoring up and maintaining business. I just wanted to write code and push to production. G2i makes that possible. They market you and your skills directly to companies. They manage all logistics, contracts, invoicing, and payments. You get personal support from their incredible team, so no previous contracting experience is required. And best of all, you join a unique collective of incredible React and React Native developers to help you through those really tricky moments. So growing your skills is integrated into a day's work. If you're a contractor, don't go it alone. Partner with the amazing people at G2i. Visit g2i.co today. Apply and find opportunities you'll love. G2i, we vet, you get hired, it's that simple. Now, let's talk about CSS. Laura, not Laura. Welcome to React Podcast.
1: You already messed up.
0: What I messed up?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm not that. I only correct people one time, and then I'm like, it's okay.
0: Okay. How did I? How did I mess it up? Tell me.
1: Laura.
0: Laura. So I did. So I did. I tried, but maybe.
1: Laura, like. Like law. Car or larva. <laughs> 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 but without the V.
0: <laughs> All right. Laura, is that better?
1: Laura, not Laura.
0: Laura. Yeah. Laura. Okay. Perfect. I have to say, I love your domain. I thought that that was such a clever. Uh, y- your domain is uh, not Laura. Correct. Dot com. Yeah. So I imagine that this is uh, this has come up quite a bit in 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 your life. Uh, do you often have to uh, correct people?
1: Yeah. Well, the main thing is the spelling, because it's L A R A. So the domain name is not L A U R A which means my email address is L-A-R-A at not L-A-U-R-A <laughs> dot com. So a stroke of brilliance during my college years. I don't think that'll be a tough type of domain to get right now. Well, it'd have to be like notlaura.club or something. <laughs> <laughs> dot,
0: cl- <laughs> dot company. <laughs> <laughs> dot company, yeah. <laughs> dot biz. Um, yeah, I love it. It has this very uh, sorry, not sorry kind of symmetry to it. It's, it's totally like on point right now. <laughs> So um we met very briefly at JSConf and uh you ha- you had this talk with the most provocative title that I think I've ever heard uh, CSS algorithms and uh, usually when I go to JSConf was this your first JSConf or have you been in the past
1: Um I went to JSConf EU the year before I didn't okay. s- I spoke at CSSConf EU the year before but had attended JSConf
0: Yeah well it's it, it the the US one is like I, I kind of think of it as like just like a poolside party with like a couple of talks. And uh, I have to say yours was the best talk of the the the, 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 the whole conference that I saw. Um, but also like, I think one of my favorite talks ever, I, I thought it was just like, I thought it was wow. brilliant. You just really nailed it. I thought all of the points just led into each other. Uh, great. So I wanted to have you on the show, talk about CSS, algorithms, all that kind of stuff. Um, but before we dive into that, I just want to uh, get a sense of of you, what you love, kind of what brought you to programming, and uh, kind of why you're doing what you're doing right now.
1: Yeah. So, let's see. Where do I start? Um, I grew up on a farm outside, outside Pittsburgh, and wanted to, like, get the hell out of there. And so, I went to school <laughs> for art in uh, Boulder, Colorado, started there, and then transferred to a school in... Um, Boston that was like this very open-ended art school because I wanted to make a video game. I was working on this like pretty weird project that I was very obsessed with and I was like this must be a video game <laughs> even though I had been doing like printmaking before.
0: What was the game?
1: Um, well, it's kind of like a spiritual satire about these like little uh, like androgynous creatures running around like eating poop where poop is like a metaphor for knowledge Um, and I'm not going to get into it any more than that.
0: Amazing. Well, that'll tie into some of the talk topics.
1: Yes. Yes, that's true.
0: (laughs) So where did you go after uh, your, your, video game?
1: Um, so I did, I, I guess I technically like first learned a little bit of programming in Python because I took a, um, like game development elective class and made a version of the game, which may or may not run on anything anymore, um. And then after that, one of my teachers... At, I, I, after that, I wanted to make a website for the game. So started learning some web languages. And uh, one of my teachers at school had encouraged me to learn to build WordPress sites as a means of freelancing. Because, like, artists, that's kind of hard to make money. So I yeah kind of ran with it and got way more into development than... Um, art even though I'm I'm starting to like revisit the art stuff now that I have like a job and I'm not living freelance life anymore but um yeah and I think uh kind of a critical thing to mention and like very relevant to my talk and also kind of part of the the little like storyline at the end um I have this like art background and was kind of immediately lumped into I mean, well I don't want to say lumped into but gravitated towards like UI development and also like doing some design work. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: like HTML, CSS, a lot of jQuery, um, and doing these WordPress sites, but also like doing some branding work and whatnot. And kind of throughout that time, like really did not think of myself as a programmer or, yeah. um, or even like a developer, which is, uh, sort of what, like what my talk is about now is like, yes, you are a programmer.
0: <laughs> did you find the, 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 the tracks kind of set up at the at the time where you were uh, studying art, uh, do they feel kind of like fairly segmented in terms of like, you know, these types of people do programming, these types of people do art. Um, and, you know, if you are in art, like maybe the, the most programming that you could do is like front end designy type of stuff.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think at, um, so like the school I went to was, uh, had no, really formal coding classes other than okay. like a couple of electives that were through a different school. Um, and so I think that my perception of those tracks was like based on kind of community and like the resources that were out there. Um, I don't know. I mean, I th- yeah, I think there's definitely a track or, and actually maybe it's even just rooted in the perceptions around like math and science um, as like a specific type of person does that. And a specific type of person does art, which is like, the right and left side of the brain is like a false dichotomy, yeah. anyways. But that's like how society sees it a lot. So I was like, as a staunch math hater in <laughs> high school and like in college too, I was like, oh, programming's math. Like I don't do that. No, these other like other languages are what I do. Um, so yeah.
0: Yeah. In in retrospect, how do you feel about that advice that your teacher gave you to kind of study uh, study WordPress as a means to at freelancing and kind of bringing in money while also pursuing art?
1: Um, it was excellent advice. So, like, <laughs> basically, just responsible for, like, the trajectory of my entire life since then. Um,
0: what does that trajectory look like?
1: Well, I freelanced for, um, so after school, I freelanced for, like, six years, six or seven years, doing, like, small business WordPress sites and also contracting with um, startups, doing like UI development and some design work. And then I wanted to, oh, well, I guess I can talk about FizzBuzz now.
0: Yeah, do it. Everyone's favorite little programming problem.
1: Yeah. So the little, uh, kind of algorithms 101 question. So I had this kind of educa- this self-taught education, like very much learning programming on an as needed basis, as I think a lot of us did, like as you're kind of coming through the, yeah. the stages. Um, And I had been freelancing. I was living in New York at the time, and I wanted to, I was feeling like I wanted to get a job and like work on a team because that's something I, a lot of the projects I did either independently or like with one other person. Um, And so I went on this, I did this job interview that sounded great. I had like a referral to it, I was really excited about it. That was for a job titled, UX engineer slash interaction designer. Okay. I believe. And in the um, job description, sounded great, sounded great. Like they listed a couple of kind of MV- uh, JavaScript framework type things, which I had done tutorials with. So I was like, okay, I can like figure this out when I need to. And uh, in the interview, they had asked me FizzBuzz <laughs> and I had like never heard of algorithms questions. Because this was like the first time I had interviewed, maybe not my first job interview, but the first time I had encountered that as, in a job interview. And I hadn't studied computer science from like programming books and things like that. And so I was like, I was like, why would you do this? <laughs> I was like.
0: <laughs> that seems cruel for that role. Uh, you act- uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: And so, I mean, it's it's not how I interpreted the role from the the description. And so I wrote this article for CSS Tricks. About it, that was like, um, "Tales of a Non Unicorn," a story about the trouble with job titles and descriptions. <laughs> that was like, "Oh, this is weird. What happened?" And then that ended up uh, that got reposted on Reddit under a different title, like under on the r/programming. Um, and they changed the title to like, "Designer applies for JS job, fails fizzbuzz, and writes oh five page rant about it." So that was kind of my encounter with like gross internet. <laughs> people
0: so that was your first uh, introduction to uh the, the the subculture of web development and yeah the uh
1: and also my first my first real encounter with like computer science and out al- and like traditional algorithms and things like that and so after that i was like like no thank you like no i do yeah. not want to be a programmer like this is horrible and mean and like why are you spending time doing these ridiculous problems instead of building things which i didn't really understand the like intent the I didn't understand the power in like a um, base computer science knowledge, and I didn't understand like how much that yeah. impacts the like code that we write as web developers, which I do now. But at the time, kind of developed this like uh, which I and I've seen this uh, kind of on Twitter and whatnot, but this like oppositional identity where I was like, I am not a programmer. I do what I do is something yeah. different um, because because I was like kind of pushed away from that community and, like, criticized for not having that knowledge. It wasn't like, oh, you did. You feel FizBuzz? Like, me too at one point. Like, hey, that's <laughs> funny. Let's talk about it.
0: Well, yeah. And also the the complete lack of, of or the separation from the context, too. Because, you know, you're talking about this, uh, the, this role, which is not an inherently programming role, right? Uh, I, I can't remember the, the title right now, but it's, you know, UI... What interaction designer or interaction developer?
1: Yeah, designer is in the title. Yeah, so it's like this hybrid.
0: Yeah, and and, and then to be able like to separate that and then just say like oh the, you know every kind of goes that that conversation that's around all the time of like everyone should learn to program like regardless of you know what your role in the stack is. Um, so where did that where did that put you like kind of you you have that experience? Did that kind of drive you more into wanting to uh, to to kind of dignify the the tools that you had as a, uh, a as a designer, or uh, did that kind of like push you away? Like, I, I I'm I'm done with this.
1: So for two years, I think about pushed me away, and it's kind of like I guess an advocate for, and I'm like still for sure like would advocate for this sort of role, but the designer developer role where like you're building prototypes, not necessarily writing,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, like maybe some production level code, but you don't need to like be writing build tools things like that and but very, very much like I don't need to know computer science like those yeah. fundamental like I and I really had this strong opinion or like those fundamentals like do not have to do with what I do day to day so like why would I yeah. spend time learning that that's I'm using these tools we google everything like you don't need to know this stuff um, and then I got an interview um, for a developer relations role at a big tech company and, um, was like really, really excited about that. And it sounded like such a dream job. And, uh, so I was like, okay. And there was going to be an algorithm. It was me like a whiteboarding interview. so I was like, oh, okay, I guess (laughs) I have to learn this now. (laughs) So I was like, okay, swallow my pride. And like, I was fortunate to be at like a lull in my freelance work. Mm-hmm. I mean, a lull is not necessarily a good thing, but I did have time to like really buckle down and spend some like long days learning about linked lists and hash tables and like all of these like data structures and algorithms and like the kind of core concepts that I had never really thought I needed or thought would be useful to me. And I wrote a series of blog posts that are on my website called Computer Science Bootcamp which I've made a little curriculum for myself from like the things you should know before you read this book table in Cracking the Coding Interview. <laughs> so.
0: How did you find that experience uh, kind of coming from design? Did things uh, have natural analogs to you? Like, was it easy to understand or did it all feel like super foreign not coming from a uh, computer science background?
1: So I think the language is foreign the concept I was like oh I know what this is because (laughs) so because um I feel like there's a way in computer science books and like education there's specific language you use to talk about certain programming concepts and I'm I'm still learning this and will be forever everybody is um sure yeah but a lot of that I just I didn't know I didn't have the vocabulary to talk about like what I was the code I was writing so like coercion for example like implicit coercion yeah things like that which that's a little more common like in javascript but like i don't know if anything's going to come to mind right now as an example but kind of those concepts i was like oh i i've written code that uses this concept before i understand what this does i just never knew it was like a thing yeah and never knew it had like a word so uh it was a kind of a process of like gathering that vocabulary and, and things like learning, like, oh, this is a different, like, this is what, I, I actually understand what a hex code is now. Yeah. And you learned about, like, different concepts that then you kind of spot all over the place in web development. HTML and CSS, like, absolutely included. So
0: so as you're as you're going through this, as you're writing uh, these, this like CS boot camp um, thing on your blog, are those the things that you're trying to tackle, like kind of mapping those concepts to like things that you already know or like kind of w- defining some of that language that was maybe like a knowledge gap at the time?
1: Yeah. Yeah, that was kind of the goal. Of, and, and it's like um, probably for everyone, but like, for myself, it's really uh, I feel like I don't officially know something unless I write about it or teach it. So yeah. I was like, I'm going to write blog posts about this and make myself kind of summarize it and it can be useful for other people too.
0: Yeah. Have you, have you had people kind of go through some of that and, and, and learn through that as well?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if anything, it's like a good compilation of links to other resources. So uh, yeah. Base, Base CS by Vaidehi Joshi is like a really, mm-hmm. really wonderful resource. Um, lots of blog posts and she has a podcast as well.
0: Yeah, we actually, uh, we're going to get her on the show uh, in, in in a few weeks. I'm oh, cool. I'm really, really excited yeah. about it. Yeah, she's amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. So this kind of like culminated in uh, in you kind of getting a, like maybe like a bee in your bonnet about like CSS as a programming language yes. and uh, how these things are not as far apart as culturally we maybe make them out to be. So uh, tell me about uh, about that. How did that start developing in you at this point in your career?
1: Yeah, so this was, um, so I failed the interview, did not get the job.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Which is fine.
1: Um, I don't know if I, I think I got like one of the in the actual interview, I think I successfully did like maybe one of the questions. So okay. learning all these basics, I still, I someday I'd like to like revisit this and do all the like the code Inner, like questions right, and be like, yep. okay, now I can really do algorithms, but I have a job, so I have to work, <laughs> um, which is good. Yeah. Anyways, um, the uh, so after that, I kind of, um, I really enjoyed learning the computer science stuff. Like I thought it was really fun and I was like, this works with my brain. Like why did I think I was like fundamentally not able to do this or something? And, um, and then I would note, and then I was also kind of learning a lot about how browsers worked and oh. understanding trees. I was like, oh my God, like the browser, like of course trees, <laughs> like, yes. And I had this whole like new way of seeing like CSS. So I would write some yeah. and, and understanding like all of the comp- the complex piece of software that a browser is. So like when we write CSS we're writing that, we're calling all of that code. And if you don't have kind of an understanding of what's happening under the hood, then it becomes like rote memorization. It's a lot harder to debug things. And I was, um, I don't know, in my, in my talk, I have this slide that's like kind of a gray text writing of like boring CSS and then transforming into like, whoa, CSS, like this is incredible. <laughs> um, and, and like something like the cascade. I had, um, I was just like really able to, once I had the, the um, context for understanding these base computer science concepts and then I looked and learned about like the rendering pipeline and like how yeah. um, like the creation of a render tree in the browser, I was able to like understand that in a new way. And then that's kind of like the middle layer. And then when I understand that and look at CSS again, I was like, oh, my God, I have this like browser in my brain now that I can like yeah. see what's happening. Um, and it's really fun. So, so this kind of, that realization encouraged the, the first version of this talk, which was algorithms of CSS, because I was like, <laughs> a little timid about saying like, oh, you write like, I don't know if you really write algorithms in CSS, but there are algorithms related to CSS. <laughs>
2: um,
1: and so I proposed this talk for CSSConf Europe, and didn't really know, I had kind of this like, catchy description. Um, didn't really know what it would turn into, but it kind of turned into a talk about like writing algorithms at like the, the CSS we write is algorithms in this kind of like yeah. cool declarative domain specific way. Um, so there's the algorithms that are part of the browser, but like what we write is uh, those are also algorithms.
0: Okay. So let's talk about like kind of the, the, the meta of this talk for a second as we, mm-hmm. as we kind of like transition into, into talk. Um, so, so first of all, um, you have this, uh, you have this, this is the first time I've ever seen this, but it, in one of your first slides, you actually say like the version of this talk and you've kind of uh, alluded to this. Um, that was really nifty. How did you, ha, like, did you just start that? Like you gave it once and then like the next time you're like, oh, this has changed like a little bit, but not drastically. And then like kind of kept doing that. Or is this like a theme for all of uh, all the talks you've given?
1: Oh, no, this is definitely the first time I did that.
0: What version are you on now?
1: 3.6.1. <laughs> yeah.
0: I love it. I love it. So I, I imagine that probably like a hard shift between two and three was that title that you're talking about from algorithms of CSS to this new CSS algorithms.
1: So version two actually only happened one time. So I'm kind of following like loose semantic versioning. So
0: <laughs> so like we breaking
1: all. <laughs> change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so like the like incrementing the first numbers like kind of the fundamental takeaway is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. That's how I think about it. Um, uh, Second number is like new information. And the third one's like maybe some conference-specific stuff or like, I don't know, whatever a bug fix in presentation terms would be. Uh, But version two, I did it. I did only one time, but that was also kind of a whole – I'm kind of sad I didn't do that more. But that was at WordCamp US – um twenty eighteen and that was bridging the design to development gap with CSS algorithms. So that was more about like using algorithms and the idea of like patterns as a way to help like designers and developers understand each other a little bit better. And then version three is like doubling down on yes, we write algorithms. Yeah. C- like the CSS we write is algorithms. So
0: Nice. So, uh, so in version three, I think the the one that I saw at JSConf US was version three. Mm-hmm. Um, what what what's the main what's the main arc? What's the main sto- uh, uh, takeaway of this talk?
1: So, this is uh, this is kind of where my versioning like broke down a little bit because <laughs> it like forked, kind of. Okay. Um, and then went back. So. The one at JSConf US, um, it's kind of about the practice of writing CSS algorithms a little bit more, a little bit more, um, less of like a heady talk, more practice based. But mm-hmm. the, every talk starts with um, a kind of the basic information where it's like, yes, CSS is a programming language. Let me tell you. So it starts out with this Twitter poll <laughs> that I've done a couple of times. Um, a few times that's like, is CSS a programming language? And the answer is consistently no. Not by that not by that much, but like fifty-three percent or something will be no. And um and then that not an
0: overwhelming hundred percent yes.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like, okay, there's a lot of people and maybe bots that think (laughs) CSS is not a programming language, okay. And then I talk about like what is a programming language before we decide whether or not CSS is one of these things? And the realm, like the world of programming languages extends far beyond the web. Mm-hmm. And there are many, many, many kinds of programming languages and people like dedicated to fields dedicated to researching what a programming language is and what types of languages there are. So I think the main, thing that comes up when someone says, like, CSS is not a programming language, they do not, they're not familiar with declarative languages, which is a whole category of programming languages. Yeah. Um, so that's the first part is, like, discussing the difference between declarative and imperative languages.
0: What is the, um, so I, I thought that you tackled this topic uh, the best I've ever seen. Uh, how do you describe the difference between, like, an imperative and a declarative uh, programming language? Uh, specifically, I know that React developers, like, are always seeming to like want things to be more declarative and like throwing the word declarative around it without actually like fully understanding Mm -hmm. what that means. Um, so what does, um, in your definition, what does a declarative uh, language look like and how does it differ from an imperative one?
1: Sure. So like at the language level and my definition slash whatever accumulation of definitions I read (laughs) is what this is. um, a, An imperative language has control flow. So you can, when you, like a computer reads a program from top to bottom, Mm -hmm. and as it goes through the statements, certain statements say to jump to a different part of the program. So like, if this, like, go execute this function, Mm -hmm. whatever. Um, That's control structures, for loops, if statement, um, conditionals. And a declarative language does not have control flow like that. So it's read top to bottom and all, any logic or control flow is like baked into the statement itself. So you have, I, I, in the example I have in my talk is like a sorting algorithm. So like bubble sort, whatever. Um, in an imperative language, you would see the actual, like you see the control structures in the algorithm, in the algor- bleh, exactly what algorithm is happening. Um, and if that was declarative code, all you would see is sort and the algorithm's kind of obscured yeah. in the underlying program. So, like, there's has to be some sort of imperative code happening um, that might be, like, at the yeah. compiler level, depending on the language. Um, yeah, control flow, no control flow. And and the, the kind of best, best distinction, I think, is an uh, imperative language, you're telling a computer how to do something. Mm-hmm. So, like, at the very granular level of, you know, get these numbers, do this thing, blah, blah, blah. Um, and declarative is you're telling it what to do. So you say sort. Yeah. You don't say <laughs> how to sort. And right. and in um yeah, in the conversations I've had with people that work on programming languages, the like general thought is like as declarative as you can make it, that's like a very safe way yeah. to build a language. That's a good very good thing. Um but those can all like imperative and declarative can also be used as uh styles of programming. So that's probably what it's kind of like in the React community where you talk about something being more declarative than something else.
0: Yeah, I thought that that was that was such a good illustration that you made because you were you really showed um, how, you know, we use algorithms like uh, display flex, right? How that's kind of tying into an imperative thing that's happening in the browser. And that that imperative and declarative aren't like, these opposing things, like, they're two sides of a continuum. And you can kind of get to more declarative. But um, really, there's always going to be some type of thing saying, this is exactly how you do it, uh, you know, do it now, mm-hmm. kind of below the code that you're writing. Now, as someone who has, has written a lot of CSS, um, how do you feel about, like, purely declarative models for programming? Are there uh, some... <laughs> kind of challenges there or should we try to get all of our programming languages to be like 100% declarative if we can
1: I mean I think we sh- they should be more declarative <laughs> Um I don't feel entirely qualified to answer that cuz sure. I don't know if I know kind of language stuff quite enough Yeah 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 But the I mean the concept behind declarative code is that you're not there's like less things you can me- less things developers can mess up mm-hmm. um, and more features built into the language rather than just kind of floating around as things that developers need to do, need to remember to do. Yeah.
0: So you have this this beautiful, the, th- this is the moment kind of like in in your talk that I was like really captivated. Because I last year I gave a talk called like Hot Garbage, Clean Code is Dead, talking about just kind of how like everything starts out as a mess. And like you're basically you're just kind of like trying to manage the mess and uh, so I was just, I, I was just like totally like swept away when you uh, you started talking about turd driven development. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the, the philosophy there, how it applies <laughs> to CSS uh, in general.
1: Yeah, turd driven development.
0: <laughs> yeah, this
1: has <laughs> been like the uh, I don't know. i one of the parts that talk. People are like, yeah, I was discussing this with my team. It was like that, and someone was like, yeah, that's totally a turd, and I was like, yes. <laughs> um, so. Test-driven development is a riff on test-driven development, where instead of um, like writing a failing test, then writing code to make it pass, and then refactoring to make it better, you just like keep writing more code. <laughs> so, and and with CSS uh, and like UI development specifically, like this for sure applies to any like any HTML whatever. You can we don't have unit testing the same way yeah. other languages do, which I definitely have a lot of ideas about that. Um, but you don't, how we can't like write failing tests in the same way you can write a failing test for other languages. So you have the design as like your base test and then you write CSS and make it pass. But like the way we treat CSS off often, not everywhere, but um, the default, the way you treat CSS is you kind of like write it and then you you stop and you're like, okay, it's done. Cool. Like I don't have to write CSS yeah. anymore. And then, a new feature comes or something else happens where the test kind of changes, the design changes. So you need to update, you need to go back to your code. And instead of like refactoring that CSS we wrote first, you write more CSS. And part of like (laughs) the, I guess the fundamental um, principle of this is like the assumption that like any code you write is going to be crap the first time you write it. So it's like, it's impossible to write beautiful code first, which is one of the, um, principles of like test-driven development. Um, so with CSS, instead of like refactoring and making the code better, we just keep writing more and more CSS until yeah. it's like, totally unmaintainable. And it's like, oh, what's going to happen when I touch this? Um,
0: so what are some of the tools that you see as being uh, valuable for en- empowering that cycle? So to, to, to acknowledge, like, hey, this is going to be bad, uh, but not living with that for forever. Because, you know, anyone who's worked on a large uh, CSS code base knows that, like, there's really no option to delete this stuff. Like you said, you just keep piling more and more on. And we don't really have a lot of the tools in our applications to allow for that to happen. So how do you shift into making more like transformative, agile, front-end CSS?
1: Mm -hmm. Um, So this is a lot of what I'm doing at work. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a lot of turdy code bases, for sure. (laughs) And so it's like, what do we do? Like, these are huge websites that are running we can't just go in and like change everything yeah it doesn't make sense for the business to invest in like a css refactor on everything so i think a big part of it is like planning for change as you're writing your css um i've i have found like on our team which is mostly back-end engineers back-end like full stack um so people that don't have like a high uh css and html level Mm -hmm. of expertise um, I've I, th- I think the burden of naming is an b- extremely yeah. big problem in writing CSS because we have like like a everybody's going to think of a different name for something. The designer is the person who should name it, who's the most qualified person to actually give something a name. Uh, but they oftentimes are not involved in the um, development process, or they don't have enough understanding of how. The, the development of the UI would work to give it a good name that will work for other in other contexts. So I've had a lot of success with like utility, like utility oriented CSS where it's like, don't like literally just don't name anything. So it's all <laughs> yeah. these tiny clouds. It's like kind of disgusting and uh, makes me cringe sometimes, but it's like working for, for our code bases because it's like your, your CSS is going to stop growing at some point point. And you can kind of slowly refactor things. So we've been using this like specific character in the class attribute that like indicates new classes versus old classes. Oh, interesting. So it's like you slowly want to remove the um, classes on like the older side before. So it's kind of this uh, like strangler vine approach to refactoring, which is I think uh, Martin Fowler came up with this concept where you – are kind of like slowly replacing an application with new um, new structures that, and then removing the old stuff, so you kind of like strangle it from the base, and it's eventually a totally different thing. Um, ship of Theseus is another, or Thesis thesis, thesis I think. This um, is another like idea where you are like have a ship, and if you replace every single part of the ship, is it still the same ship, even though it's the same thing? So,
0: oh yeah, it's like a a. a philosophy like brain exercise right like yeah it, what is it it's like if it if a ship goes out to sea and it rebuilds itself completely at sea is it the same, same ship by the time it gets to its destination or, right or whatnot? which is which is bizarre but I don't know do, do you have an answer to that
1: uh no
0: in the context of, uh, context of <laughs> programming and, and, and like rebuilding your ships at sea
1: oh um I mean no I mean yes it is no it's not the same ship no, because I mean it's a better ship. <laughs> Ideally, it's a cleaner yes. ship that's like less prone to regressions and easier to manage in the <laughs> in the long run. Um,
0: One that's better at actually sailing at sea.
1: Yeah, and I think for like using a like style lint has been really amazing for um, what we're doing at PMC and not allowing BEM selector concatenation. <laughs> <laughs> specifically <laughs>
2: yeah which yeah. is like
1: might like really might work for some teams but like our specific setup like these this like nesting just becomes like so out of control yeah um but that's the kind of stuff um just like to think about like where like how we treat css versus other languages it's like a no brainer that you would have some kind of like coding code formatting style guide for javascript or yeah. for php etc and so like css has that too
0: so where do you feel, uh, how do you feel about this intersection right now about where uh, maybe like CSS developers sit in terms of like the the, the org chart? Because a lot of times we have like a separation, you know, sometimes where it's like, and, and it changes at every different company, but you have like your, your group of engineers and developers and then you have like your designers and then there's like a CSS person who maybe sits on like either side of that line. Uh, do you have a thought about like where they should be? in organizations and how we should think about the person who does the CSS mm-hmm. given all of these like challenges of you know like a, a, a global namespace and uh, like all these things that aren't necessarily things that strictly designers think about.
1: Mm-hmm. Well I go I go like back and forth about this. So I am as the resident CSS person at PMC my employer Penske Media Corporation um, I am on the engineering team. So and we have uh, a very small design team, and design is like very political, so it's kind of not an option to be on the design team. Okay, um, there are other kind of folks in the front end community and in the UI community that I've heard really advocate for developers being on for HTML and CSS developers being on the uh, design team because. You need to be sitting. If you're implementing design, you need to be sitting next to the designer. Hmm. Like that's where it has to come. So things like in design systems, design tokens, um, design tokens, which are the kind of set of uh, sort of like a style guide, but the set of like micro design decisions, like font families, the name names of colors, etc., that you can start syncing up the naming in the design with the naming in the application in the code base. Um, that has to happen like with a designer. So depending on the structure of your company, like you might not be able to have that kind of communication with design, which is how yeah. PMC is. Um, and, and just now we're st- I'm starting to work more with the designer to like sync up the language we're using, but um, that like wasn't necessarily possible at first, which has kind of made me realize like the value in coming at this from the engineering side is that like you need to have like the right testing. Like even if it's, visual regression testing, things like that, and figuring out, like, how to keep, like, what are your coding standards
2: mm-hmm.
1: for CSS? Like, wh- how are you building CSS? Like, do you need to build CSS in Webpack? Like, we've had, <laughs> this is, like, I've, oh, my God. <sighs> yeah, or tried, like, really hard to have a, like, centralized, because we have, like, 25 different uh, brands and with different, like, asset building, and... Yeah, it's like a lot better to have CSS built with Gulp. Yeah. <laughs> and and we, we're all, and, and like that's not, and coming to that conclusion, I don't know, if I was like deep into design land, which is also not what my interest is, uh, those are, will be hard things to figure out and and end up going, they're going to be solved at some point or people aren't going to use the tools because the developers need to use these tools, so
0: yeah, I, I think that you you talk about this really interesting space that is something that I think a lot of people don't realize is a challenge and then re- the responsibility of the people in these roles, the people who sit between design and uh, development is, is that like typically design, like, you know, if you have departments a design kind of comes down through engineering, but then a lot of times your role is to, like you said, like move things, move concepts back up, right? Like we can't call this thing. a a box or whatever because like that that's already taken and so our new name is this and if we can mirror that up like if we can bring that back up through design like the whole process like moves a little bit better instead of having this layer where we have to map these concepts you know from design to like engineering or or our design system or, or whatnot and it seems like these these people have I don't know I guess they call them like unicorns or whatever people can like go back and forth but there's a very human element to like being able to kind of like hold both people's hands like hold, hold the hand of design hold the hand of development and kind of like bridge that gap and like help these teams work better together instead of that traditional model where it's like you know someone throws something over the wall and then you know more css is written and then it gets thrown back and then back again and then you know in that turd driven development cycle, Uh, how much of this, like, I guess working through communication and like healing that organizational divide is a part of your specific role in at PMC.
1: A lot. First of all, like I really do not like using the term unicorn for this. So, because (laughs) it's an actual, like there's a lot of people that do this. Um, And like, I think more companies need this role. Yeah. And a title I like quite a bit is design engineer, mm-hmm. which comes from other industries that have this break, these silos um, and the design engineer, like on a, like in building a building, for example, or designing a building, the design engineer would be the person that sits between the architect and the civil engineer. And has enough of an understanding of the materials and enough of the understanding and like sympathy with um, the visions of the architect to like make those two kind of bridge the gap and be the liaison between those two mm-hmm. sides. So um, yeah, but that's like really exactly what my job is: doing design systems because it, it's figuring out like how to um, like while I really don't do design. And depending on who I talk to, sometimes you're like, "Oh yeah, so you're a designer, CSS." And I'm like, "No,
2: <laughs> I, don't
1: do I mean, but but that said, like I do have an, I do have an art background. I could." That probably the design I would produce by default, even if I'm really critical of it, would be, um, you know, by some measures like better or like more informed than Mm -hmm. a design from another person who has no art background, of course. So I do have like the knowledge and sympathy with for design and like for I can recognize like oh that that font sizing is weird or like that doesn't quite align. So kind of have the eye to spot those things, but. I don't do, I don't like make that stuff myself. I don't do the designs. So I can help, like I can understand where the designer's coming from and where like the stakeholders, et cetera, are coming from Mm -hmm. and then translate that and figure out like what engineering needs to do to get that to be more of a reality. And also to say like designers are like, we're not doing this.
0: No. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. another
1: thing is being like, okay, you're just gonna have to live with that line height because, sorry.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, and I, I love this idea that you've mentioned this a couple times. I love this idea of sympathy, right? Having sympathy for both sides, uh, and I think it plays into some of the solutions, like you said. Like, no one would like go into uh, go into their office and come out with a utility based CSS, right? Like, it's just, it, it's irrational. But when you're when you're sitting in sympathy between you know both design and engineering, it actually comes out to be like a very rational path forward, like one that allows you to uh, say yes more often to both sides. Yeah, and and that's like that's the beauty of of the role that you have and the role that so many other people have that sometimes can be very like ill defined.
1: <laughs> yeah, and um, and I think there's and I'd be really interested to do some kind of like questionnaire about this to see like, what are the, what state is code base in at companies that do not have this role and at what point, and, yeah. and so I don't know if that's in this role, like corresponds directly to design system.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, like, is this, is this a role that like every company needs that we just don't, that's not a, uh, not a convention right now. Like that's not a mm-hmm. normal thing. Cause it's, you know, we're kind of like, capitalist society so it's like (laughs) what language can you build the most things with and like grow the fastest with yeah javascript like you're not gonna grow your entire business with just html and css (laughs) um but if you don't invest in those technologies it's gonna majorly bite you at some point or you're gonna be sued because people can't use your website
0: yeah yeah. So do you feel like design systems, because that se- that really has uh, kind of risen up to the surface in the last couple of years. Uh, do you feel like that's kind of the bucket that a lot of companies are putting this role into?
1: Mm, yes, probably. I mean, you also hear titles like UI engineer, UX engineer. Um, and, and this is something that we're probably going to be like approaching soon at PMC is like, do like our design system, which is much less a compo- much less a library of components and more like, of frame frame or standards for writing front end and like really strict naming conventions, uh, because we can't commit to certain components because there's like twenty five different brands and
2: yeah
1: and like designs change all the time so, um like to to have a design system like do you have to have a design systems team because that's something that like in the design systems community is like really advocated for. And it. it's like, you need to yeah. have like, this has to be its own product with a roadmap, et cetera. Or can it be something that is, which is potentially where we're headed at at PMC, It's kind of like unclear. I'd be curious what, what things are like in a year. Um, like is, does this become uh, a piece of software that like, yeah, maybe one person kind of uh, started it is the major expert in it. But is this something like a team of people with different skills can maintain over time? And I've heard that the answer to that is no from other companies, (laughs) but I don't know. Because it is something you really need to invest in. And and maybe maybe it is enough to have one person in that role or not. I don't know. Mm
0: -hmm. Because it seems like in in, in your particular role where you're uh, producing a lot of WordPress sites, uh, you're actually building a platform for several design systems. As opposed to just, like, a single design system that, like, bridges the gap between a single design team and a single group of developers.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, that's a good... I mean, we do have, like, this... Like, each of the brands has a pattern library mm-hmm. um, that's built of the same stuff. So, the biggest, uh, the biggest goal is for everything to be, like, really predictable and findable.
0: Yeah. Well, we are kind of, like, coming up to a close on our time. I wish I could, like, just... Talk to you all day about all this kind of stuff because I find the way you think about this stuff fascinating. Um, but you had this uh, really amazing takeaway at the end of your talk, and I kind of wanted to end with it, which is that CSS and HTML and all these things are this this amazing like springboard into other technologies if we think about them right. You know, if we think about like if we honor. CSS as having these algorithms, and then giving people the potential to then kind of like dive, dive deeper, and like an invitation to come learn more. How do you see that playing out at companies? How can companies better invest in a mindset that invites people in, no matter what their current level of understanding is?
1: While hiring, well, I don't know. So I don't know if it's a I'm trying to think like within the. Context of companies
0: or even culture if that's easier.
1: Yeah. Yeah. culture. I mean, a lot of it just has to do with like education. So when we teach and and it's really different coming up as a developer now than it was like when I when I learned and um, anybody who's been doing it for more than like five or six years. um, Now there are so many things you need to know, like very specific (laughs) items that are like kind of um, like not easy, not things you can just like figure out tinkering around on a web page. Um, yeah, so instead of taking HTML and CSS and cramming them into like one or two weeks at a bootcamp and then like never learning anything else
2: <laughs>
1: about them, um, I would like highlight them as like lang- really interesting languages that can help you learn a lot more about the browser about this like um, they' and they're so beautifully like resilient and easy to get started with and, and easy mm-hmm. to like see vi- results and see things working you're like that's what we love to do and as like software developers you love building things and like html tss you build something immediately when you're starting and and kind of yeah um embracing that power as like bringing people from more diverse backgrounds um or diverse interests into programming so instead of starting out with languages that you know fail with a typo like teach people the nature of code and the nature of like programming which is like writing instructions for computers teaching that and highlighting that with html and css but then also so instead of saying like okay cool you figured out how to type let's go on to real languages instead of doing that say like okay <laughs> now you understand these languages let me show you how like what's actually happening under the surface here yeah and this is like another type of programming like this is what's powering your declarative code and using that as an entry point and i think that like then this is my like story really is like coming from, like, a creative background. This is not something I would have been interested in had it not been for HTML and CSS. So
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, we can, you know, attract like get more women into programming, more people with, from creative backgrounds, non-traditional backgrounds, things like that. Um, so instead of saying, that's not a real language, blah, 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 <laughs> you say, like, yes, you are a programmer.
0: Yeah, it's all part of a continuum. And you have these kind of continued ways of illuminating or just kind of like, you know, maybe stopping where you feel comfortable but knowing that you are also programming it's no less programming just because it's this language or or the other Mm -hmm. i love it i love it now you are embarking on a new research project that actually kind of tackles like the edges of this which is like how programming a programming language is uh could you tell me a little bit more about that and like how people could uh contribute their thoughts to that
1: sure so this is a um Little, so I I just was at Strange Loop the conference and gave this talk there which was really cool and I'm like if there's a talk about CSS at Strange Loop then it's a programming language. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep yep.
1: But the um, there's a, a computer science researcher in the Netherlands named Felina and I had really resonated with her conference talk um, that she's been giving for all she did a lot of research about spreadsheet programmers and looking at oh. Excel as a programming language mm-hmm. and as like yes people are programming and spreadsheets and I had seen her talk after I started doing this talk and I was like oh my god like like parallel things happening here so I had gotten in touch with her this is a a big like thumbs up for reaching out to people you find inspirational on the internet um and we ended up doing this project together for strange loop so she had um this idea to do a have this kind of spectrum where you order programming languages from most programming to least programming to try to, uh, um, and, and gathering data about that to see if we can better understand what, um, what how people are determining what is programming and what isn't, or what's less, less programming. Because people interpret that differently. And one of the different versions of the CSS algorithms talk focuses more on our, vari- our different definitions of what a programming language is. So it's kind of a okay. subjective, even though there's, you know, a, a sort of a really open-ended academic version of the definition, people have their own subjective understandings of what programming is, of what a programming language is. And so this uh, little like data collection app is kind of a way to try to um, figure out what that is and get some like basic demographic information to compare. And we have uh, we have like, Good amount of data so far. So if anybody sees that and wants to contribute their um, their response and or- organize programming languages on, on a spectrum, most to least programming.
0: Well, it's a super cool uh, project. I am really excited to see like where you take it, like what you uh, kind of coalesce the data into, because um, it's just really fun. And I was kind of even just playing around with it uh, th- this morning, just realizing a lot of my own internal biases about like what is programming and what is not.
1: Yeah, like, people see it... Like, some people say that most programming is, like, closest to the machine. So, like, assembly language, C, things like that. Okay. Um, but then other people think it's like, oh, what can you ship the fastest? Interesting. And and what will the world be like if most programming was, like, the languages that allow the most people to start programming? <laughs> so, it's like... Wow. Yeah, it's interesting to think about. It. Not to bias people listening to this already.
0: <laughs> Put you
1: in a, a nice, like... I don't know questioning your entire life as you're filling out my survey but <laughs>
0: <laughs> well as people want to learn more about um your research there uh, how can they find you online uh, find your projects etc cetera, etc cetera?
1: yeah I guess twitter I don't I have like a very hot and cold relationship with using twitter <laughs> but same but twitter um on my on my blog now that my conference speaking is over for this year um or at least calm down a lot, I'd uh, like to do some more blog post writing. So my, uh, not com, my website, as we discussed. Um, and then my Twitter handle at Laura S one two six. And if any of this stuff resonates with listeners or have similar experiences, I'd love to hear about it so feel free to send me an email.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, Laura, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate, uh, Everything that you're doing to bridge this gap—it's been—it's uh, been needing healing for a long time—and I really appreciate you standing in the gap there and uh, helping people uh, have sympathy for both sides.
1: All right, thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: One more time, go watch Lara's talk. You can find a link to it and everything else discussed at reactpodcast.com/slash-sixty-eight. Thank you, Lara, for joining us today, and a big thanks to our sponsors, G2I and Linode. Instantly deploy and manage an SSD server in the Linode cloud. Get a server running in seconds with your choice of Linux distro, resources, and node location. Get a $20 credit when you visit linode.com slash react and use the promo code REACT2019 at checkout. G2i is a hiring platform for remote developers devoted exclusively to React and React Native. Check out G2i at g2i.co and get matched with React and React Native roles that are fully remote at companies who are serious about quality engineering. G2i, we bet you get hired, it's that simple. This episode of React Podcast was edited by Mikhail Delport. It was produced by Mikhail Delport and Sarah Jackson. You can find React Podcast on Spec, a network to help designers and developers level up. Visit spec.fm to find other shows that will take you further in your career. Help us out by reviewing this show on iTunes. Your reviews help the show grow and help us ensure great guests and awesome content week to week. To join the discussion, visit reactpodcast.com slash chat or follow us on Twitter at reactpodcast. I'm at Chantastic. To stay out of the discussion but get updates, visit reactpodcast.com slash news and sign up for emails. Thanks so much for giving us your attention. We'll be in your ears again next week.